Now, one of the things we need to, need to remember about this church of Ephesus is this. It was a church of differences. It was a church of differences. In this church of Ephesus that Paul's writing to, they were both Jew and Gentile alike. These were kind of the two major ethnic groups of his time. Jews were, of course, Jewish people. Gentiles um, were, were people that were either Roman or Greek or African or others, right? They filled this kind of category of these are the Gentile ethnic, ethnic group, and then there's this Jewish ethnic group. And both of these ethnic groups came together in, in a church. So there's this diverse city, and there's this diverse church. And as you can imagine, right, they brought a lot of differences to the table together. They brought a lot of differences together. They brought different cultures. They brought different experiences. They brought different expectations of how things were to be in a, in a church, in a city. And just like any other group of people, they also brought different personalities to the table, right? They brought different sins and struggles to the table, to this common table called the church. And furthermore, there was this historical and current tension that existed between these two people groups. The Ephesian church found themselves sitting across the, across the table from people who, in the past, had desired their end. They're sitting across the table from people who have wronged them for years and desired their end. And people who maybe just weeks ago would not even engage with them on the street and maybe, maybe would even sit with them at the same table. There were many differences and there were deep-rooted divisions that existed in the city of Ephesus and in the church of Ephesus. So in light of this, Paul is writing this letter and he's spurring them on to maintain the unity that Jesus had won for them. That's what he's doing. He's spurring them on. He's, he's calling them to walk in the unity and to grow in that unity and to seek to attain the fullness of that unity that Jesus had won for them. And he has painted a picture for them already. He's painted a picture of what Jesus had done to bring them together. He told them that, hey, Jesus died to break down this dividing wall of hostility that exists between the two groups. And he's saying, hey, here's what he's done when he did that, when he died for that. He's made the two groups one new group in place of the two. He's brought you all together. And he's reminded them of their new identity as one new family, as one new family of God, and as one new temple. He uses that temple language. And he's exhorted them to work together as one new body, to build each other up, to reflect the fullness of Jesus. And he's called them to make sure that they understand what a preference is and what a priority is in their dealings with one another. But listen, right, how many of us understand that just because we hear these types of truths, it doesn't mean that the hurt and the division and the distrust will immediately melt away, does it? And so, so Paul continues. He continues to kind of put his foot on the gas pedal and drive home the importance of not just believing the right things, but now living the right way in light of what we believe. And specifically, he's talking to them about this idea of treating one another in a way that aligns with the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit who now dwells within them. So he calls them, you see in chapter 4 we saw, to walk in patience, with one another, to walk in gentleness and humility, to bear with one another in love, to remind one another of, of their oneness and the oneness of our God, and to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because Paul knows that the daily temptation for this group of people, and for us today as well, will be to remember the wrong that's been done to us by someone else. It will be to react to the reality that we are around a table with a group of people that are indeed different than us. And so we, like them, will be tempted to read into things. We will be tempted to respond to the disappointment or hurt of our previous experiences. 
We will be tempted to get angry when someone swings and misses culturally with us or when somebody offends us or disappoints us. And so he calls us once again to put off some things that will divide us rather than unite us. He says, to put off as God's new people bitterness, wrath and anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Now, full full disclosure here. To put it lightly, Paul is a very repetitive person. If you read Paul, he loves to repeat himself. He's like a good teacher that way, right? Repetition is the best teacher, and he really believed that idea. And so we see him here repeat some vices that he's already touched on last week, in fact. But the way, listen, the way he bookends these vices and the application for them will be very fresh for us today. So what we're going to do first is actually a little unusual. There's only three verses today. We're actually going to start with the middle verse. We're going to look at the middle verse in verse 31. And we'll see that he mentioned several voice, uh, vices here that we are to put off as God's new people. So verse 31, he says, he starts off this way. He says, put away or put off bitterness. Now what's bitterness? Bitterness is this idea that's like sour speech or, or, a, or a sour spirit. Aristotle puts it this way. I love how he frames bitterness. He says, bitterness is an embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Bitterness is an embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Because listen, right, some of us in this room have probably come from some experiences, right, that bitterness um, is part of our narrative right now because of something in the past that we've experienced. Because we've been left maybe jaded or scarred or hurt. And unless that pain is appropriately dealt with, what will happen is bitterness will become part of our narrative, begin to have a root in our lives. And my guess is that the church of Ephesus had some bitterness rooted in its members, right? I imagine that some Jewish folk has felt some bitterness towards some of the Gentile folk and vice versa. And I imagine there are people here today that are, in fact, jaded because of a past experience. And hear this, it's okay to be a hurt person. It's okay to be a hurt person. It's okay to be a hurt person. Your pain is legit. Please hear that. Your pain is legit. But God also wants us to process through this pain because he doesn't want it to snowball into bitterness because he knows that if it snowballs into bitterness, that we will begin to share that bitterness with others, that we won't heal and we will spread our hurt to others, right? So Paul says, hey, Church of Ephesus, put off this bitterness from among you. And then he says, put off wrath and anger. Now, last week we talked about anger in a positive light. Paul said, be angry and do not sin. We talked about this idea of righteous anger. Here, it is actually looked at in the negative. This isn't righteous anger, but this is the anger that boils up, that is hostile and divides. Paul knows that we have reasons to be angry, yet he calls us as a new people of God to not be a people that is known for passionate rage or hostility. We must remember that for the direct audience of Paul here, that the Jews and Gentiles had a wall of hostility up, right? Like I mentioned, there had been a lot of anger between the two groups. In fact, it probably mirrored to some degree what we see in the Middle East today between, between Jews and Palestinians. There is this beef between people groups. There's anger and hostility towards one another. And so he calls them to put off this anger and to put off this wrath. And today, I would say even here in Seattle, this is applicable for us, right? We too probably have a variety of people groups that, that we feel anger and hostility towards. It might be the other political party, right? It might be the suburbs versus the city. Some of us are in that camp. <laughs> it might be racially motivated. It might be gender motivated. 
Or it may be more individual, right? It might be maybe we're angry with someone in our family. Maybe we're angry with somebody in our church. Maybe we're angry with somebody in our social circle. So Paul says, hey, put off anger and wrath from among you. You should not even be named among you as the people of God. And then he says, put off clamor. Now, this is not a word I use a lot. I don't know if anybody here uses clamor. Like, man, you're clamoring. But when I first read it, seriously, the way I, when I first read it, I was like, I thought of clammy hands. Is that weird? I'm like, the clamor, like put off clammy hands? Is that what's happening? I, didn't, I, don't, I don't use this word. But here's what it means. Basically, it means to stop screaming at each other when you're angry at each other. Like, stop using these loud voices, right? It's tied to this idea of abusive speech, clamor. And as we looked at last week, right, speech has this unique ability to tear down rather than build up. Our tongue and our speech has this unique ability to tear others down. So he's like, hey, put away this angry yelling among each other when you're beefing. Put it away. And then he says, put away slander. So he continues this this speech theme here. He says to put off slander, which is this idea of speaking evil about others to others. That's what it is. To slander is to put off speaking evil about others to others. And when we do this, when we slander one another, what we do is we defame people. We, We hurt their reputation. This is a very toxic thing that we really struggle with in our culture in general in the United States. I think all people do, but we really struggle with this. And it's really, really, really easy to fall into. It takes an incredible level of discernment and self-control and courage to take a pass at slander. And as a family of God, we are not to be known for our slander and our gossip. Because listen, way too many people have been hurt by slander. Way too many people are being cut to pieces even on something like social media, right? In the name of being prophetic, right? Oh, it's being prophetic, Oh, you're being slanderous. You're being slanderous. Slander is the opposite, right, of building up. What we talked about last week, to, to speak the truth to one another in love. It's the opposite of that. So we are to put that off as the people of God. And then he uses his last word. He says, put off malice. Now, what's malice? Malice is basically what happens when we do any of the above vices I've just mentioned with vicious intent. It's this idea of wishing and even plotting evil against others. It's wanting to see the downfall of other people or going out of our way to help bring them down. Example of this is like, all right, I'm a basketball fan. Any other basketball fans in here? I'm a big fan of Michael Jordan. He's my guy. That's my generation. I think he's the greatest of all time. I will argue it, argue it, and argue it. I really believe it. Now, this new generation is a little crazy. They think that LeBron James is the greatest of all time. He's great. I like him as a person. I want to hang out with him. I would do that. I think he's great. I don't think he's the greatest of all time, right? And so here's what I do every playoff year. You know what I do? I root against him so hard. Why? If he keeps winning, then the argument for him being the GOAT, the greatest, rises. And so I seek his downfall in the playoffs every year. Now, that's not quite malicious, but it's kind of what malice looks like. Not quite, because I like him. But, and it's just basketball, but I root against that man. Uh, they're losing in the first round this year. So, down 2-1. So, what, all right, let's move on, let's move on. Right. So what Paul's saying here is, hey, Church of Ephesus, you are not to be known for this list of vices. That should not be part of your MO anymore, right? That's what he's saying. Then I love, I absolutely love what Paul does next. Um, I'm a bookend nerd. Anybody else really like bookends? 
like in, in writing or in, in, in teaching, or when somebody has like something in the beginning and something in the end that kind of makes the middle like make sense. I love a good bookend. And so on the front end of this text, there's a reason why I started in the middle, because on the front end of this text, he starts us out with a really neat bookend. He says that when we live out these vices, when we live them out, when we are the ones that are being bitter, when we are the ones that are being bitter, when we are the ones that are angry and slandering and full of malice, when we are on the giving end of these vices, we do this. What's he say in in, uh, verse 30? We grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, don't do that, right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's where he starts in verse 30. So he starts with this book in. Now, before I jump into what it looks like to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, I thought we should look at who the Holy Spirit of God is. Some of us in this room might be like, I just, I'm not even following Jesus yet, so who's this Holy Spirit you talk about? That's a little weird. It's a little different, right? That's a, that's a weird idea. Maybe some of us are still trying to figure it out in our walk of Jesus. Like, who's the Spirit of God? So I'm going to just give a, a Cliff Notes version. We can't dive too deep into this, but here's, here's who the Spirit of God is. As followers of Jesus... We are given, when we start believing in Christ, the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to live within us. And his role is to teach us and to lead us and to convict us of sin and to comfort us when we need comforted and to empower us. The Holy Spirit is God himself. Christians believe in this idea of the Trinity, that God is completely equal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equal, yet they are distinct. They play distinct roles in the lives of the Christian and in their lives together. So we have this idea of God himself indwelling us by his spirit. Now, that's a pretty radical idea, right? Like, we, we confess that as Christians. Like, it's a bit weird, but we believe it's true. And there's a lot of stuff like that when it comes to Christianity. Like, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Like, how's that work? Or Jesus rose from the dead. Like, wait, come again? He rose from the dead. Okay. There's some different things that we believe, but we believe them to be true because God is God and we are not. We're okay with that. Like, we're not God. God can do some things that doesn't quite fit in our box, things that we can't quite do or understand, which makes him God. And we're his creation. We're okay with that. That makes him who he is. But this Holy Spirit who dwells in us also plays a part in our salvation. He seals us, the text says, for the day of redemption. He seals us. Now, this is what that means. He keeps us. The Holy Spirit is playing this amazing role in our lives that he's like, I've got you. You've trusted in Jesus, I've got you. I'm going to put my stamp on you. I'm going to seal you so you can't go away. I've got you. I'm not going to let you fall away. I've, you are mine. He seals us for the day of redemption. Now, what's that? That's the day when we see Jesus face to face, when we're fully redeemed, when we're away from all types of sin and chaos in our lives and our world, and we finally are with Jesus. So he does this A to Z work in our lives. I seal you when you begin to believe in me. I keep you until the day that you see Jesus face to face. Incredibly important role in our lives. And furthermore, there's this idea in Scripture, when speaking of the Holy Spirit here, called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a list of characteristics that are, in fact, very opposite from this list of vices we just shared. And the Holy Spirit wants to indwell us, and he wants us to reflect the character of God. So he begins to work in our lives so that we begin to live out these characteristics that are new, the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and so on. He wants us to live these out, so he indwells us and begins to reshape how we live and empowers us to live in these ways. Because, listen, right, we can't 
in between our sealing and our, and our full redemption, there's something that exists, right? Because it's very past-oriented. Like, he seals you when you begin to believe in him. Then it's very futuristic-oriented when he says, until the day of redemption. But there's this whole area right here that we exist in right now called the present, right? And in order for us to live as the present, as God's new people, in order for us to reflect our Lord wherever we find ourselves, we need the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Because following Jesus isn't only about being forgiven. And following Jesus isn't only about making it to heaven someday. It's about those two things. It's not just about those two things. Following Jesus is also about reflecting the kingdom of God in the here and now. It's part of being God's work. He's going to use us to bring healing and hope to our world right now. And in order for us to live that out, we're going to need the Holy Spirit. We're going to need to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so he's active in our lives in order for us to do those things, to live out those ways, so that we can push back against all the vices we feel crowding us in and trying to get us to return back to that old way of living. And then lastly, let me say this about the Holy Spirit of God. He's fully personal, right? He's fully personal because he grieves. And to grieve is to cause pain or sorrow or distress. And only something personal or someone personal can feel those things. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of weird thing that's out there. He's deeply personal. He feels what humans feel, pain, distress, grief. Now, what grieves the Holy Spirit? Because Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, for starters, right, because he's the Holy Spirit, anything that is unholy grieves the Spirit of God. Anything that doesn't align with the, with the way of God, anything that, that any of these vices, right, would grieve the Spirit of God. And then since he is the one Spirit, we looked at that in chapter 2, we looked at that in chapter 4, that he is the one spirit, the one that unites us. Disunity will also cause him grief. John Stott puts it this way. Anything un- incompatible with the purity or unity of the church is incompatible with the spirit. Let me say that again. Anything incompatible with the purity or the unity of the church is incompatible with the spirit. And the list of vices we've just looked at are unholy and divisive in nature, and so they grieve him. When we live out these vices in our relationships, both, they both grieve God, and we drive wedges right between people that we're living these vices out with, the people that we've hurt. And when we sin against a spouse, or a parent, or a child, or a friend, what we are doing is we're creating this distance between us and them. And now the work of reconciliation needs to take place, because if it doesn't, the gap will only continue to widen And our hearts will only continue to grow harder and become less open to making things right with them. And so as we slander and as we become angry and as we become bitter and seek malice with others, we are doing two things. Number one, we are hurting another person that is created in the very image of God. We are causing division between one another. Number two, because we are hurting and seeking ill towards someone else, we are in fact grieving our God, who is holy. We are, in fact, creating some division with the God who dwells within us. We're creating some division there. We must understand this, that our wrong towards one another doesn't just affect that one person. Our wrong towards one another does not just affect the one person. Instead, we must understand that it affects them for sure, but it also affects us, and it affects the community around us, and it affects our relationship with our God, right? 
And so when we are the ones that are dishing out, when we're the ones dishing out these vices, we are in fact hurting the very heart of our God. It's like a parent who's watching their kids go down a bad path, right? We see when parents see their kids making bad decisions, when parents see their kids hurting others, it grieves the heart of the parent. In a similar way here, when God's kids, when, uh, when Christians live out these vices, it hurts his heart, bringing him grief instead of gladness. Bringing him grief instead of gladness. Yet the good news is, like a good parent, he still continues to love his kids. Amen? He still continues to love his kids. Because don't forget, if you are in Jesus, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Although we, although we may hurt him, he will never, ever leave us. And that's the good news that's attached there. So on this front end of the text, Paul's saying that when we are the ones dishing out these vices, when we, we are in fact harming the vertical relationship between us and God, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And then on the back end, we see the other, the other um, uh, it's my mind is bookend. On the back end, we receive the other bookend in verse 32. Paul says in, the, in verse 32 that when we are on the receiving end, okay, so front end, when we're, when we're, on the, when we're dishing it out, we grieve the Spirit. On the back end, when we're receiving, when we're on the receiving end of these vices, when people are hurting us, when people are slandering us, when people are angry at us, or bitter towards us, or wanting ill for us, when that's our reality, we are to be a people that forgive. We are to be a people that forgive. He's going to now address this horizontal relationship as it relates to these vices, okay? So he starts off this book in with an, with an attribute that is one of the fruits of the Spirit. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. He's saying, hey, listen, rather than hurting one another, be kind to one another. He's saying, rather than growing hard-hearted and seeking revenge when someone has wronged you, be soft-hearted and seek the other's good. Now, let's just be real right here. This isn't easy, right? This is not easy. This is why we need the Holy Spirit of God, because there's no way on our own that we will be able to respond to the vices we've just listed with kindness and a tender heart. That's not the human way, right? Humanly speaking, it is unnatural to take hits and not hit back, right? But Paul here is reminding us that we are indeed a new society in Christ. And as God's new people, we live out a new ethic in the world that is longing for change. And so he says, hey, listen, I know there's some beef between people. I know there's some beef going on in the church of Ephesus. I know that Gentiles have hurt Jews and vice versa. I know that your marriage has been challenging and that you've hurt one another over and over and over again. I know that your pops left you and your mom alone. I know that your friend who you trusted has slandered you. I know that as a person of color, you've been mistreated more than I could ever imagine. Even by people in the church, right? I know that you've lost trust because how a pastor or leader or someone else in the church has treated you. I know that you've been unwelcomed and alone in this city. No one's reached out to you. I know that you've sacrificed for the good of others only to be returned with hurt. And I know you've experienced so much more hurt in so many, many more ways. Paul says, I know that. But listen, we can't continue to return hurt with hurt. We can't continue to return hurt with hurt. It will only continue this, this spiral-down effect that is ravaging our society right now, right? It will only continue that. 
It will only continue to strip people made in the image of God of dignity. It will only continue to divide us. It will only continue to grieve the heart of our God if we respond with hurt, with hurt. So we've got to stop the bleeding. We've got to stop the bleeding in our world, in our city, in our communities. And forgiveness is the way. And forgiveness is the way. Tim Keller says this, that cycles of reaction and retaliation can go on for years. Evil has been done to you, yes, but when you try to get payment through revenge, the evil does not disappear. Instead, it spreads, and it spreads most tragically of all into you and your own character. So instead of returning hurt with hurt, Paul calls us to be kind to one another, to be soft-hearted, and to forgive those who have wronged us. And listen, forgiveness is one of the most courageous things we can do as human beings. It's courageous. For when we forgive, what we are doing is we are taking the hits. That's what we're doing. We are taking the arrows. We are in some sense taking the sin of those who have hurt us. So it means to forgive someone. We are saying, yes, you've wronged me, but I will not hold it against you. I will treat you with kindness instead. I will receive the hurt and not use it against you. Forgiveness is trusting that God will bring justice to the wrong you've received rather than seeking revenge. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. Tim Keller says once again that when you forgive, you not only suffer the original loss of happiness and reputation and opportunity in the moment, but now you forgo the consolation of afflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. Then he finishes, he says, it hurts terribly. It hurts terribly. Now, as I say this, I know you may be thinking, look, Sam, that's easy for you to say. Like, you're the pastor. You're supposed to teach these things. Can I just be really vulnerable with you just for a moment, okay? This is something I, too, have had to wrestle with and to practice as well. Part of my story involves being deeply wounded and having to come to a point of forgiving someone very close to me. In fact, Reach Church, the church that I was at before planting a reunion, did a little short story on it. And I've actually brought those short stories with me today. They're in the back if you want to grab one on your way out. And I did that for a couple of reasons. Number one, so that you know me a bit more. I want you to know my story. Like, I'm going to be one of your pastors. I want you to know me, right? And then two, so that you can see me as someone who is in the trenches with you, not just pontificating to you, right? I'm in the trenches with you. All of us have to figure out ways to forgive and to deal with beef in our, in our relationships, right? We're together in this. And so if you want to grab one, no way out. Please do so. Now, back here to the text. There's two things about forgiveness here, and, and there's two truths about forgiveness that we've see, we're seeing here. And, and I've experienced both, and my guess, if you've forgiven, you've, received, you've experienced both, or you will experience both. One, we just talked about forgiveness is costly. It's suffering. It hurts. It's hard. You take on stuff. Number two, forgiveness is also freeing and healing. Forgiveness is also freeing and healing. Forgiveness is, yes, a type of, of suffering, but good news, it's a type of resurrection. It's a type of resurrection. N.T. Wright, in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, says, Forgiveness is saying, I release. I release you from any burden of guilt in any sense that I might still be angry with you when we meet tomorrow or that I will treat you differently in the future or try to get even with you. He continues, but I also release myself. Release is that freedom language, right? I release you and I, I release myself from having to go to bed cross. 
from having to toss and turn, wondering how to gain my revenge. Martin Luther King Jr., who obviously practiced forgiveness in a way many of us cannot relate to, said, forgiveness not, does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on evil act. I hear that. Forgiveness doesn't mean like what you did is okay. Evil is okay. We're just going to let it pass. It's not what forgiveness is. He says, rather, forgiveness is that the, e- that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. He says, forgiveness, this is important. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. Freedom in healing language. Forgiveness, on one hand, is costly, right? And sacrificial. And on the other hand, it is... It brings a new start. It is healing and freedom. It releases us from the bitterness that either has come or can come because of our hurt. It releases us from seeking malice because malice has been done to us. It releases us from returning vice with vice. It allows us to live in the very freedom that each of us long for. That's what it allows us to do. It brings good to us and to those around us. For if we are free, if we are healing, we can be more present in a healthy way with those around us. And the world needs our healthiest self. That's what the world needs. Both the costly part and the freedom part of forgiveness brings good to us and to those we forgive. It spreads something. Listen, it spreads something that our world desperately needs. It spreads the gospel. That's what it does. And as we will see in just a moment, it can only be rightly motivated by the gospel. See how Paul finishes up chapter, uh, verse 32? Forgive others as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven us. That's his motivation. As God in Christ has forgiven us. So in the first section, we looked at this vertical, this vertical relationship, our relationship between God and us, how we can grieve God through these vices. And then in the second part there, we looked at the horizontal, our relationship between one another, how we are to forgive one another. Now this last one, looks inward. It, looks, it, gets, it gets a little more personal with us. Paul tells us that we are to forgive others because our God in Christ has forgiven us when we sin. He's saying, hey, listen, the holy, perfect God of the universe, the one who created you, the one who has saved you, this God, although he has never sinned, is willing to forgive the very people that he created, although we have over and over again rebelled and sinned against him. And if he is willing to forgive us, right? If he is willing to forgive us, how much more should we, people who are imperfect and people who have sinned, forgive others when they have sinned against us? That's what Paul's getting at. Paul motivates us well here. He reminds us that we want grace from others. And we want grace from God when we mess up, don't we? He reminds us that, when we, don't, that we don't want God to hold our sin against us. And then he attaches that to forgiving others. He's saying, if you don't want God to treat you that way, why are you okay with treating others that way when they've wronged you? That's what he's getting at. He says, if you want grace, if you want your wrongs to be forgiven by a holy God, then can you, a sinner, give grace and forgive others their wrongs when they sin against you? He's got us cornered. That's what's happening. He's got us cornered. Because listen, if anyone has the right to not forgive, it's someone who's perfect and holy, Right? It's the one who's never needed to be forgiven in the first place. It's God. And we exist because of him, and everything good we have is a gift from him. So if he wants to flat out judge us and deal with our rebellion the way that we deserve, in light of all of our, our vices, right, he has the right to do that if he wants to. But listen, 
he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, he chooses to take on our sin. He chooses to come down to our level. He chooses to live among us, and he chooses to eventually die for us. The perfect one dies for the imperfect. The the sinless one dies for sinners. The holy one dies for those who are unholy. The one who gives life instead takes on death. The one who has all the rights gives away his rights for the benefit of others. And as he dies for us, he utters these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, let let me take the blame. Father, let me take their sin. Father, let me pay the cost. Father, let me give them the freedom and healing that they need and long for. Father, forgive them. Family, every sin we've ever committed both against God and others, Jesus takes on himself and dies for them and then forgives us completely. That is our motivation for forgiving others that have wronged us. That's our motivation. We have grieved our God. Each of us have been guilty of that at times. We have hurt others. We have been hurt. We have been forgiven. So we are to forgive others. We are all on a level playing field here. And our God has chosen to meet us where we are and to bring us into something more. And as we receive his grace, we are to receive his forgiveness and we are to go and do likewise. That's what he's calling us to today. So what I want to do now is invite the band up. I'm going to say a few more things. I'll invite the band up. How do we respond to the scripture? How do we respond to the word of God here? Paul calls us into some very strong action steps. He calls us not to grieve the Spirit of God. He calls us to put off some vices that may exist in our lives. He calls us to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. He's called us to do three unique things today. How do we respond? Number one, I'll say this. We are going to need to take a self-assessment. We need to take a self-assessment. There's no one here that hasn't lived out some of the vices I've mentioned today. The question is, Are there areas that we're currently living out that we need to put off? Are there people we are currently at odds with that we need to seek reconciliation with? Are we guilty of slandering others? Do we have bitterness that needs to be dealt with that's there, that's been kind of sitting there for a moment, for a season that we need to deal with, that we need to take to Jesus? What are some areas we need to confess and repent of and take to Jesus today? Have you received the forgiveness of Jesus? Maybe you're here for the first time and you've not yet received the forgiveness of Jesus and you're holding on to stuff that you have guilt and shame and you're not sure what to do with it, but it's your identity. You live in it and you have not yet given it to Christ and said, I receive your forgiveness. That's why you died for me. I want to receive it now. Do we need to ask other people for forgiveness? Is there somebody you need to ask for forgiveness that you've wronged? Do you need to receive? Do you need to forgive? Do you need to forgive someone? Has someone said, I for, I, I, I'm sorry for what I've done. Will you forgive me? And you've held that grudge. You haven't offered them forgiveness in return. Jesus says in the Gospels, For if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. He says again, If your brother or sister sins. Rebuke them. Call them out. Be like, hey, that's not right, man. And if they repent, if they change, if they ask for forgiveness, forgive them. 
And if they sin against you seven times in the day, like, man, again? <laughs> and turn to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Hard stuff. That's why you need to be motivated by the gospel. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. So what action steps do we need to take in order to be reconciled with God and others? What's the self-assessment there? How are we doing? What's some stuff we can take to Jesus and to others? Number two, we're going to need the Holy Spirit. We're going to need to ask the Spirit to forgive us when we grieve Him and hurt others. And at the same time, this is what's crazy about the Spirit. Like we, When we sin against others, we actually grieve Him, yet at the same time, He is the one that we need to fill us and to bear His fruit in and through us. We need Him. And so we need to go to Him and say, Hey, Holy Spirit, I'm sorry for grieving you. Now would you fill me with your fruit so I can go and follow your way instead of these vices. You and I have, do not have the ability to live this out on our own. We do not have that ability without the Spirit. We cannot respond with kindness when we've been wrong unless we submit and are filled with the Spirit. So we're going to need the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we are going to need Jesus. We're going to remind our, need to remind ourselves over and over and over again who Jesus is and what he's done. The gospel should never get old for us. It should be on, on repeat all the time in your little iPods, you know. Repeat. I don't have an iPod. It should be on repeat all the time. <laughs> is that still a thing, iPods? No, iPhones are. We're going to re- have this on repeat, always reminding ourselves, like, who is Jesus? What has he done? What does that mean for me? It helps us keep that soft heart instead of that hard heart, right? He says, be tender-hearted. The gospel helps us maintain a tender heart. The gospel is the power for those who believe. The gospel is the main thing here, right? The gospel has the ability to change lives. The gospel can soften hearts. And Jesus can help us forgive others because he has forgiven us. We're going to need Jesus.